Welcome back to These Are The Words. I'm Eric Grun. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, I'm going to be uh, playing a little bit of music called Globular and Geoglyph Messages from the Resonator Psychedelic Dub World Music by Shiva Light. And uh, let's continue with the book False Beliefs by C.L. Schaefer, The Serpent Seed Doctrine and the Kenite Myth. Okay, I said last time that I was going to read the last part of the uh, commentary from the Serpent Seed Doctrine. Closing thoughts on the Serpent Seed Doctrine. As shown, the writings that contain the Serpent Seed Doctrine were scribed by those involved in Gnosticism, mysticism, and or Talmudic Judaism. And as we know, um, in Christianity, those are actually heresies. They're considered heretical and blasphemous because they don't teach the deity of Jesus Christ as being one with the Father God and one with the Holy Spirit of God. They don't teach the triune, the triunity, and the triune God. Three persons of one essence. So they're considered... Um, Heretical, And so that is the reason why Gnostic Gospels, as they were called, Gospels, were not considered canon or authorized scripture or God-inspired or God-breathed scripture because they don't, they're, they're not about Christ. They really aren't the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Godhead. They're about Gnosticism, or special gnosis, or special knowledge. They're about having a special knowledge. And they aren't really Gospels at all. Um, because it isn't uh, good news if you claim to have special knowledge apart from God. God is beyond everything we could imagine, and... Um, we will never <laughs> stop knowing God. We will never stop. Uh, God will never, put it this way, God will never stop revealing himself to us if we are seeking him. We will never get bored of knowing God. But apart from that, there is no special knowledge uh, in which we must have in order to know God. All we must uh, know is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, have a relationship with Him. And how do we have a relationship with Him? We read His Word, the Scriptures of the New Testament. We read His Word and get to know Him and pray. 
pray to him and converse and talk with him, and he will talk with us in the Spirit. His Holy Spirit will talk with us and teach us all things. That is what Scripture says. But we do not have to have any special knowledge, and um, anyone can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. All, all people are welcome to having this intimate relationship with Christ, as long as we have faith in Him and believe in Him. Um, we can have. We're open to have, and we're welcome. And invited to have a relationship with him, so there is no elite, elitist. There's no such thing as an elitist group of people who have special knowledge, um, exclusive to them. The Lord will deal with us one on one, in particular to our um, temperament and character. But we are all made in God's image, meaning we are all made according to the characteristics of God. And only God himself, Jesus Christ, can show us uh, who we are and what we are and show us those characteristics. So in getting to know Jesus, we are indeed, in fact, getting to know uh, how we are created and who and what we are created to be. Okay. So, closing thoughts on the Serpent Seed Doctrine. As shown, the writings that contain the Serpent Seed Doctrine were ascribed by those involved in Gnosticism, Mysticism, and or Talmudic Judaism. These groups were looking for answers outside the biblical text and away from the Christian perspective. For others, myths, legends, and other fictions, rather than the actual truth, filled their imaginations resulting in such inventive stories as Satan riding on the back of a serpent. On the back of a serpent, which the Bible never says. And so this is a super, called a superstition. All, all myths that are based around Bible stories are superstitions. Okay? And many people, as we discussed last time, many people believe and choose the superstition, which is totally fiction, over the um, the actual Bible, the actual scripture, and the scripture is packed full of wisdom if only we would be taught by the Holy Spirit and in relationship to God. Reading the Bible as a piece of literature is good, but it isn't good enough. We have to talk and converse with the Lord, with God, with Jesus. We have to have a relationship with Jesus in order to comprehend the scriptures. Why? Uh, if we're in the darkness, the darkness comprehends, does not comprehend the, the word of God. That's what the scripture says. But if we're in the light, and the light is Jesus Christ, we are able to be taught and learn the scriptures and understand it and comprehend it. Okay, in the case of the Talmud, rabbis guessed in the dark because they did not have or could not accept the revelation of Christ. Hence, 
alternate explanations were provided concerning ambiguous biblical verses, such as Genesis 5, 1 through 3, verses 1 to 3. Out of this understanding, doctrines such as the serpent seed doctrine were formed. This is what the serpent seed doctrine is, an explanation for evil provided by those outside of Christianity. This is why the early church rarely, if ever, discussed this doctrine within their writings. They didn't need it. They knew where sin came from. Compounding this idea were rabbis who perpetuated the belief that they were descendants of an inherited righteousness. However, since it was obvious that evil did indeed exist, they needed to provide an explanation for why it existed. The serpent seed doctrine provided a means by which to explain how evil was the result of them, not us. Hence, further separating those within Judaism from the Christian message, which told them, yes, it's us, but it's you too. Meaning, the Christian message is that we are all sinners, that we are all fallen from the, the, the grace of God, that we're all fa uh, fallen and uh, come up short compared to the glory of God and the holiness of God and the perfection of God. And um, every man is a liar. Every person is a liar. So every person, we sin. We sin. We're fallen in, we're a fa in a fallen nature. We're in a fallen condition. And we sin. So that's why we need redemption. That's why we need to be forgiven. That's why we need to repent. That's why we need to confess our sin. That's why we need to accept Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. The atonement of Jesus Christ in his sacrifice. That's why Jesus came to save us from our sin. And so once we are saved from our sin by God's grace through faith, then we are acceptable, made righteous before God and made holy and perfect and pure before God and can approach God and have a relationship with him. And that is only given through Jesus Christ. That is not given through any other spirit. Okay? So this is the Christian message. The serpent seed doctrine was never widely accepted, even among those within Judaism. It was mainly left to the fringes. Nonetheless, with the denial of the very crucial notion of a universal sin nature, an idea fundamental to Christianity, and denied by those within Judaism, it no doubt became much easier to accept the serpent seed doctrine and in turn discount Christianity. For those who had a propensity for such imaginings, it was not a leap to believe angel-human hybrids, not of Israelite descent, were the cause of evil. For the Christian, the problem of sin did not begin with a hybridized human being named Cain, but with human beings named Adam and Eve, of whom we are all descended. Because remember, the original sin is Adam and Eve disobeyed God and went and rebelled against God and went against uh, um, what the Lord commanded. For those within the Christian identity movement, the doctrine has become a useful tool to show who is supposedly with God or who is against God 
from a purely physical bloodline standpoint. For some, this idea goes even further, allowing personal salvation to become less important or viewed as altogether fictitious. An example of this can be found in an online article titled, The Insane Doctrine of Personal Salvation versus Covenant Theology. In this writing, the author perpetuates a false version of John 3.16, ignores biblical passages pertaining to free will, and overlooks the reality of conversion of non-whites, such as blacks, and the biblical evidence for it, as well as the biblical genealogical narrative after the flood. The author furthermore promotes the idea that only the white race is of Adam. Due to this, the white race is the only race that will receive salvation. One might notice similarities to the inherited righteousness found among those within Judaism. Neither thought they needed Christ, for if race could save you, then there was and is no need for a savior. This is the other unbiblical notion at the heart of the serpent seed doctrine, the idea that there is something special about one's bloodline. The New Testament understanding is that there is no such thing as an inherited righteousness or a special bloodline set apart for salvation since we are, since we are all fallen, all equally fallen, all fallen. If we put our faith in Christ, we will be saved. Other supporters may attempt to preach the gospel alongside the serpent seed doctrine, but they are blind to how the gospel and the serpent seed doctrine do not complement one another. This is evident in how those who invented it rejected the Messiah and the revelation he brought. Those who enjoy a good conspiracy theory are often followers of the serpent seed doctrine. The conspiracy theory for supporters begins with the belief that those in leadership intentionally hid the truth in the early developing years of the church. All the while, supporters never once considered consider that early Christian writers examined these Judaic ideas and simply found them erroneous. <clears throat> The conspiracy theorists have it wrong. The conspiracy is, in fact, the doctrine itself. This author cannot think of a better doctrine that turns followers' eyes away from the realization of their sinfulness, which is the starting point for any believer and the main point of the gospel. From a day-to-day -day Christian living standpoint, the serpent seed doctrine may seem benign to some, no doubt, this is why certain people just shrug their shoulders and say it is a possibility, but unfortunately, there is yet another unintended consequence to it. As shown, the doctrine can lead believers down a path that teaches race can save. For those who may not be willing to go that far, the doctrine still results in damaging believers whether they are aware of it or not. An alternate reality arises. 
that stands in contrast to the sin salvation theme found throughout the biblical text. When one believes the descendants of Cain have only the deceitfulness of their father to act upon, and due to this have a lesser chance at salvation. This elevates those who do not have to deal with the hindrance of being in Cain's bloodline. This consequence lurks in the shadows of the doctrine and plays into people's self-righteous, self-important opinions of themselves that evil could not possibly be because of their sin, but is due to those over there, the supposed physical descendants of Satan. Christ came to show us how we are all tainted by our sin and how we need him to save us from our sin. When we turn to the serpent seed doctrine, we are turning to an alternative explanation for evil and consequently lessening the revelation of our sin nature and the impact of what Christ did for us. The impact of what Christ did for us. For this reason, the serpent seed doctrine is not harmonious with the biblical text or with the gospel, but is an antithesis. Uh, antithesis to it and should be rejected by anyone honestly seeking sound biblical doctrine and Christ himself. All right. I don't think I I read that last part of uh, the last section. So we're going to pick up again on chapter 5, the Kenite myth and Strong's concordance. Okay, chapter 5, Kenite Myth and Strong's Concordance. Thus far, we have shown the source for the Kenite Myth's emotional power. Next, we will examine the so-called factual evidence supporters use to conclude that the Kenites are Satan's children. To summarize, supporters believe Satan had a sexual encounter with Eve who brought forth Cain. Cain then supposedly became the patriarch of the Kenites. One main difficulty with the Kenite myth is there is no ancestral link. There is no ancestral link link within the biblical text between Cain and the Kenites. This should be troubling for supporters who assert the absence of a genealogical connection between Adam and Cain in the Bible and conclude Cain must not be Adam's son. Apparently, this absence of a tie between Cain and the Kenites is of no concern. To show an association, those who follow this myth turn instead to their concordances. Supporters base their belief in the Kenite myth on the definitions they find within their concordances. They point out how the words Cain and Kenites are the same word in Hebrew, which is Cain. Once supporters see the same Hebrew word being used for both Cain and the Kenites, they conclude that the Kenites must be descended from Eve's son Cain. This is an assumption made by supporters because it fits their narrative. However, 
There is no genealogical record within the Bible of the Kenites being from Cain. Simply because the same Hebrew word is used does not necessarily mean there is a familial connection. There are other possibilities. Nevertheless, let us first examine the prospect of a familial connection. The business of metalsmithing. Some scholars have shown that the word Kenite means ironsmith in Arabic. The Hebrew word Kayin can also mean a lance and is translated to quote-unquote spear in the KJV, the King James Version, in 2 Samuel 21 verse 16. As such, some theorize that the Kayin, the Kenites, worked with metals. Supporters combine this with the fact that one of the Cain or Cain's descendants, Tubal Cain, was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Supporters then conclude that the Kenites were descended from Tubal Cain since both worked in metals. There are other possibilities for why the Kenites may have worked in metals other than a familial connection to Cain. The skill of metalworking was not exclusive to Cain and his line. During Israel's conflicts with the Philistines, specifically during Saul's reign, there were no blacksmiths in Israel. However, outside of this time, the Israelites did have iron tools. The Bible indicates that at some point they had they had the knowledge of forging iron. Bezaliel, the son of Uri, who decorated the tabernacle as per God's instruction through Moses, was a worker of some metals such as gold, silver, and like Tubal Cain, brass. Bezaliel received his skills of working with these metals directly from God. However, the Israelites apparently did not receive their expertise of working with iron from God directly, so they would have received their skills by other means. It is possible that the skill could have been passed down to them from Shem through Noah, whose ancestors prior to the flood received it from Tubal Cain. Due to this, the idea that one needed to be Tubal Cain's direct descendant in order to acquire the skill of metalworking does not play out since Bezaliel worked in at least some metals and the Israelites also had objects of iron they may have forged themselves. This supposed familial connection of the Kenites to Tabal Cain, which is based on metal smithing, is not very convincing when we look at the larger picture. The Kenites could have received their metalworking skills from some other source other than a, from a familial connection with Tabal Cain. This is if we accept the presumption that the Kenites were even predominantly metalworkers to begin with. 
the Bible does not describe them as such. <clears throat> the lifestyle of the tent dwellers. Another way in which supporters attempt to make a familial link between the Kenites and Cain is through the Rechabites. In 1 Chronicles 2, verse 55, we are told that the Rechabites share a connection to the Kenites. Supporters point out how the Rechabites received a command from their father, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that all of your days ye shall dwell in tents. So far, this much is true, but then supporters attempt a direct link from Cain's descendant, Jabal, to the Rechabites, because Jabal is described as the father of such as dwell in tents. What supporters neglect is that Jabal raised cattle. For the rest of the verse says, and such as have cattle, and of such as have cattle. The Rechabites eventually took up the tent-dwelling lifestyle for a very specific reason which will be discussed later, but there is no indication that the Rechabites raised cattle, and it is of little concern if they did. This so-called connection completely ignores others who could also be connected to Jabal and then to Cain simply by the type of, habi of habitation they kept. Noah lived in a tent, Genesis 9.21. We are also told his son Japheth, would dwell in the tents of Shem, Genesis 9, 27. Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents, Genesis 25, verse 27. Abram also lived in tents, Genesis 13. He also raised cattle. In fact, the text informs us Abram was very rich in cattle, Genesis 13, verse 2. For this reason, if we use supporters' logic, Abram makes a great connection to Cain and Jabal. And we cannot forget about Jabal, another of Cain's descendants, who is described as the father of all, such as handle the harp and organ. Genesis 4.21 Of course, David played the harp, so by supporters' estimation, he too, must be, he too must be a descendant of Cain. In the end, attempting to make a familial link between the Kenites and Cain's descendants by way of the kind of habitation they kept falls short. The same Hebrew word. Supporters claim there is a much older version of a concordance which defines the Kenites as the sons of Cain. Already presupposed to the serpent seed doctrine, supporters believe this older definition for the Kenites is further proof for the Kenite myth. However, this definition does not do this work. It only gets supporters as far as saying the Kenites were possibly Cain's descendants. After all, the meaning 
this source provides for the Kenites is not sons of Satan. Certainly, if Dr. Strong and his fellow contributors, or the author who wrote the more direct meaning of the sons of Cain, had shared the same perspective as supporters do, they would have been astounded. However, the reason this was not a shocking revelation was that one needs to accept the false teachings of the serpent seed doctrine in order to get this definition to mean the physical descendants of Satan. Cain's line survives. If we accept the definition provided by the older concordance in which Kenites means the sons of Cain, then the answer seems simple enough for some for, for non-supporters. Cain's line must have become absorbed into Seth's line without much fanfare. Those having an ancestral connection with Cain could then have continued the name onward, thus becoming the Kenites. Intermarriage between Cain's and Seth's descendants would explain why similarities exist, existed between the names of their offspring. See the names of Cain's descendants in Genesis 4, verse 17 through 18, and compare them to the names of Seth's descendants in Genesis 5, 7 through 30. These similar names could be the result of a close community of the offspring of these two brothers. It would also provide a reason why Seth's line lists an individual by the name of Canaan a name very similar to Cain, which gives us yet another possibility as to why the name Cain appears again after the flood. Cain's line does not survive. Others do not believe Cain's descendants made it past the flood by intermarriage. To these individuals, it is not as if there would be anything wrong with it if they had, but to them... The Bible just does not seem to indicate this. Cain, uh, Cain's line ends at Genesis chapter 4, verse 22. Before the conclusion of, this, of his line, the text discusses Lamech's three children, Jebal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. These children apparently went on to father children themselves, according to the text. However, the Bible never mentions the names of Lamech's grandchildren. The genealogical record ends abruptly, and one could assume from this that either Cain's line died out prior to the flood, or it perished in the flood. On the other hand, Seth's line continues with his descendant, Lamech, through Noah. By this, the text seems to be making a comparison by drawing out Lamech in Cain's line. Where Cain's descendants died off, Seth's line went on to survive the flood and become all of us today. For those who believe Cain's line did end prior to or during the flood, there are several options as to why the name Cain shows up again after the flood. 
One reason may be that Noah and his descendants simply carried with them the oral history concerning what occurred before the flood. One of these stories concerned Cain and Abel. These stories spread to such an extent that even a city was named after Cain as recorded in Joshua 15 verse 57. Cain's line may have ended prior to or during the flood, while stories concerning him continued and influenced the, name, uh, influenced the naming of a city and or a people group. After all, Cain, although a murderer, was the firstborn son, a highly prized position in Middle Eastern societies. Another possibility is found when we look at the root words for Kenite and Cain, which seem to be related to cities. During his wanderings, Cain built a city, according to Genesis 4, verse 17. First, Samuel 30, 29 informs us that the Kenites had cities themselves. They, uh, that the Kenites had cities themselves they probably constructed. Part of the definition for Cain or Kenite Cain is a play upon the affinity to 7069. This refers to the word Kana, which in part means to erect, in other words, to create. Now, supporters will say this shows a familial link, and perhaps it does. It would not be a big deal unless you subscribe to the Serpent Seed Doctrine. This author agrees this is not conclusive evidence. But it is interesting that the Kenites may have been called the Kenites simply because they shared an attribute of building cities, or they were city builders, just as Cain had, with no familial link intended in the meaning. Whatever position, whatever position we take concerning Cain's line, the conclusion we cannot draw from the fact that the the conclusion we cannot draw from the fact that the same word, the same Hebrew word, is used for both Cain and Kenites is that the serpent seed doctrine is true. Supporters go wrong in attempting to, the, to use this as evidence for the doctrine. This fact only suggests that the Kenites may have been the descendants of Cain, although there are other possibilities as has been shown, pointing out that Cain and Kenites or the same word in the Hebrew language does not get supporters where they need to go. It does not describe Cain's heritage. It may tell us something about the heritage of the Kenites, that they were possibly from Cain, but it does not tell us Cain was of Satan. Notice again the heavy emphasis on the serpent seed doctrine. Supporters must believe in it. If thought false, then the fact that the Kenites were a tribe of Cain would be unexceptional since it was common practice to name your tribe after a patriarch. For this reason, the Serpent Seed Doctrine must be drilled into followers' minds. Otherwise, the reality that the Hebrew word for both Cain and Kenites is the same is hardly noteworthy.
So it goes back to what I was talking about before that we develop and create stories around and make superstitious stories and myths, mythologies up around things that are simply written as uh, a matter of fact. So if we read scripture and just take it as it is, and once again, pray that God gives us a comprehension and understanding and that God teaches us on all things and he will be faithful to do so if we are sincere in seeking him. So next time, chapter 6, the flood and the biblical text that keeps getting in the way. Um, God bless you and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Uh, and I'll leave you with uh, a little bit more of this music. And uh, until next time. <laughs>